Hi everyone, Dan Cassidy here. Welcome back to How Should I Be Positioned on the UBS Market Moves podcast channel. For today's edition, we will focus in specifically on commodities investing, including thoughts around the kind of role the asset class can play in a portfolio in consideration of the current environment. Joining me here for the conversation, glad to welcome back from the UBS Chief Investment Office, Jason Dreho, the Head of Asset Allocation for the Americas. Glad to have as well from our partners at Bank of New York Mellon, Al Chu. Al serves as a Portfolio Manager for Nuded Investment Management. So with that, Jason Al, thank you both for spending some time with our clients, our listeners. Nice to be with you both and looking forward to hearing your views on the commodities landscape. Welcome. Thank you, Dan. Welcome, Al. Morning. So as a starting point, Al, can you speak a bit to commodities performance on a year-to-date basis? Talk a bit about some of the drivers and where you believe we are currently in the commodity investing cycle. Yeah, it's been a very volatile year for, for commodities. Um, I think there's definitely a, a, a dispersion scene between price and fundamentals. Uh, on the pricing front, we, we've seen pretty much volatility across the board, right? Um, I think beginning of the year, there was a lot of optimism baked into either a softer landing and China reopened, but as the year progressed, um, whether it's the rate height fears or um, just general, you know, Silicon Valley Bank and banking run in financial distress, um, you know, commodities uh, viewed as a risk asset has been volatile and it's been um, been, been hit this year. But that that's on the pricing front. On on the fundamental front, it's very tight. I mean, we we, we look across energy, uh, metals and mining, agriculture, a lot of the same cyclical and structural issues that have plagued. The, uh, the sector for the past few years are still there. So, Jason, what are your thoughts on the commodities landscape? Here we are just about to enter into April. Thoughts on year-to-date performance and where we might be in the investing cycle? You know, I would agree with a lot of what Al said. You know, the fundamentals, when you take a kind of a micro level, of the supply and demand dynamics of a variety of asset classes within the commodity space, it would suggest that prices should be higher because, you know, supply is, is somewhat limited. There's been a lack of investment for a number of years. Inventories are low. I'm saying it's kind of broadly defined. So that was sort of the expectation, one of the key kind of pillars of the view that the you know, commodity prices broadly were going to go higher this year. Uh, the fact that it hasn't is a little bit surprising, especially in an environment where the global growth dynamics, at least until very recently, was kind of better than expected. You're seeing kind of global growth kind of drivers pushed higher. So I think one of the factors that maybe is driving some of the performance, and this is more maybe more applicable to you know to oil prices, specifically maybe energy in general, is you know, some position and flow data. Uh, and there's certainly anecdotal evidence of you know of investors who uh, you know started uh, uh, you know maybe put on like you know protection like hedging positions for oil prices. Uh, as oil prices fell, the you know, banks who had kind of underwritten some of those positions didn't have to hedge the position. They do that by actually selling. So it almost sort of exacerbates the move. And I think some of the activity recently we've seen with oil going down more so than, say, equities in the past couple of weeks on all the global you know, kind of the bank stress issues might be due more to exposition. At least that's kind of what I'm hearing. I'd be curious, Al, for, for if you think that's also sort of a factor driving at least maybe the price for oil recently, but also if there's some position and flow aspects that might also be influencing the commodity prices this year. They had performed very well for much of last year. You know, they kind of towards the end, it, it, it tailed off, certainly. But uh, I wonder if there's, a, to some extent, a bit of a position unwind as investors fear recession. Uh, they'd ridden commodities higher as an inflation story, but maybe now this, this, that dynamic is changing, and that's 
you know, at least a factor that's driving some of the commodity performance. So do you think that, how much do you think that might actually be at play what's going on, uh, at least in, in the first quarter of this year? Oh, no, I, I think you nailed it right on the head, Jason. I mean, this is, I, I think, the vast majority of, of what's driving the pricing weakness. It's the delta gamma hedging. It's the maybe slightly um, bullish positioning coming in the beginning of the year. Um, but, you know, if we look at the fundamentals, I mean, you know, in a way, my, my job is simplistic, right? I, I look at two things. Um, holistically, I look at supply and I look at demand. Uh, if we look at demand, I mean, this is probably the most well-anticipated recession we've ever been in. Um, you know, honestly, demand is it's normal. It's fairly holding in. Uh, gasoline, diesel, you know, jet fuel is still recovering, but it's okay. Um, what we're really not factoring, in, uh, I think, by, by consensus is that China is back. I mean, you, you know, China coming back into the world market and into their economy running, running back up to kind of a full uh, full economic cycle, it, don't, don't discount that. I mean, the uh, economy that's been in, in a lockdown for two, three years, um, when they reopen, I, I'm pretty sure that Chinese government is not going to uh, allow a tepid reopen. So I, I think that's going to be a pretty big factor uh, year over year, at least. Uh, on the supply side is where are we getting new oil? Um, you know, the U.S. is having trouble, you know, whether it's logistics or infrastructure or, or just, you know, management you know, discipline. Uh, to produce more oil, uh, OPEC is firmly in charge. They they are very being very disciplined. Uh, we haven't really even seen Russian uh, allergies yet. So I, I think the the real uh, fireworks is still yet to come. And I think this is more pricing volatility driven by flows and by more technical reasons. And those usually will at the end of the day get trumped by fundamentals, such as supply and demand. So if I can just follow up on on that point, in thinking both the supply and demand story, on the demand side. You know, like three months ago in mid-December, the thought was China is not going to drop its COVID zero policies until, let's say, the middle of this year. The full reopening is going to be more of a second half story. Very quickly, they dropped that, and now it's kind of pulled forward all the timing, which led to, like, to say, the Chinese equities rallying quite a bit uh, end of last year, start of this year. But now, as we're you know two and a half months into the year, I think there's a little bit of maybe disappointment on the part of investors thinking, oh, why isn't China reaccelerated more quickly? Uh, maybe the enthusiasm at the start was got a little ahead of itself. But it seems like part of the driver, or at least the anticipation for, for the demand side of the story from China hasn't been quite as strong out of the gate. I mean, presumably it's going to sort of pick up as the year goes on. But it, maybe relative expectations, it seems like it was less than expected. You know, like your thoughts on that. On the supply side, one of the wild cards of this whole, at least the past few months, is, is Russia supply and how much after you know, Europe basically said, you know, okay, you can no longer, we're no longer going to buy, you know, oil from Russia. There's a kind of a question mark of how much will they produce? Where is it going to sit? Who else might step in as other buyers, whether it is China, or India, or other countries? So I think that sort of uncertainty seems like it's been a bit, a bit of overhang in terms of supply dynamics. Uh, so I, know, I guess your thoughts like on how much those two factors, China maybe not opening up as quite as much as people may have thought at the start of the year, and just a lingering uncertainty of this Russia supply and where it's going, who's buying it, and how that might kind of play out for the rest of the year. Yeah, yeah. No, I think the China reopen story is, you know, I think there was climbing a wall of worry about whether they would do it or not. And then when they did reopen, when prices didn't react, I think, you know, the bears are quickly, you know, climbing in and jumping on that bandwagon. But the one thing we have to understand about the Chinese economy is that it's very seasonal, right? In February, um, it's basically Lunar New Year. You, you, you have shut down. It doesn't really pick back up. It's not a one to two day holiday, right? It, it's multiple weeks. Um, the Chinese economy on a seasonal basis starts in earnest starting April, May, the spring ramp up. But even before then, I mean, the, the, all the underlying data, traffic, congestion, you, you know, um, you know, domestic flights, 
all of those are solidly above 2019 levels. And this is before season on a seasonal basis they start to reopen. So if you look at the total social financing data, you know they, there is record amount of, of financing being pumped in the system. And we're not. This is before the seasonal part of the year. So for all the people saying, "Oh, you know, Q1 is going to be," it's not a Q1 story. It's going to be spring, summer. That's when we see the, the highest physical draw across the board, whether it's energy products, coal, uh, you know, metals, uh, the you know, use for consumption. That's when we're going to see. So I, I think the people calling the "Oh, well, China reopened has disappointed." I, I think that is uh, probably incorrect. And then two is also understand that. China reopened, if you think about it in a, in a way, it, it's a very idiosyncratic event. Um, China reopening really doesn't depend on what Powell's going to do or what Yellen's going to do or what our, the U.S. regional banks are going to do. And if you look at Chinese stock market, it's holding in near the highs. This is very much so a, a kind of a domestic, private consumption, private um, services-driven um, re- reopen. So if we look at that, in, in a world of volatility and financial uncertainty, China reopen might be one of the... Um, you know, more purists and, and, and alpha play that we can think of out there. Um, your second point is actually interesting on Russian supply, right? Because uh, you're absolutely right. Russian supply has not been disrupted. If anything, I think Russia is actually producing a little bit of more oil than they were uh, pre, pre-Ukraine. Uh, one of the reasons is that, you know, every any volume of oil that they're not sending to, to the rest of Europe, you know, they're finding buyers in, in, in China and in India. And you can see that with, with tanker rates being just Piping, right? Because instead of piping it, you actually have to now ship it, right? The real bullish angle on, on Russian oil supply is not that, oh, well, are they really going to take off that 500,000 barrels uh, that Putin has been threatening on the market, right? It's actually, if you look at Russian uh, fields, unlike a lot of the uh, NLCs out there, I would say the Russian technical capabilities, the domestic capabilities are not that strong. I think they're very highly, highly reliant on, on Western oil field services companies as well as equipment and parts and supply. I mean, you can see even on the war progress, they're running into a lot of logistical issues in terms of getting parts, supplies, or, or just new weapons. Um, their oil field is in similar shape. They really, really rely on Western. So as sanctions take, uh, take form, it's not the, well, what's the one-year outlook? It's, well, it, what if Russian production over the next two, three, four, five years really started to the point because they can't bring in the technology and the investments needed to keep those fields up. And that's actually the real, I think, bullish angle on, on Russian supply. Not so much as the near-term stuff, but we really haven't seen any disruptions in the near term. And I'm going to assume that China and India will keep on buying Russian crude um, for, for the remainder of this year in the foreseeable future. But it's the kind of long-term supply outlook that I'm I'm probably more worried about. Al, just to jump in, a follow-up as far as positioning, I'm curious as to the role you see commodities playing in a diversified portfolio today, just in consideration of the current macro environment. I know we're tracking a lot of fluid developments. Yeah, no, that's a great question. Because I, I think what, what happened is during, during the, 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 the bear market for commodities, you know, a decade plus, we, we forgot that commodities is a real asset class, right? If we look at it, it's a large liquid asset class. Um, you know, over a long period of time, it's a zero correlating asset class, meaning, you know, last year's a perfect example. Market went down, commodities went up. Um, there are periods where it goes up with the broader market, but over a long period of time, it is a zero correlating market class. Um, there's typically going to be a positive yield, you know, especially nowadays with the companies making so much cash and, and kicking back dividends and then share buybacks. So you catch, you capture positive yield. Um, it's a, it's probably the best inflation hedge, large liquid way. 
um, for you to play inflation. Now, there are a lot of inflation products out there, tips, income, high yield, and then infrastructure. But the, the, the punchline always is, oh, well, you lose less money. It's a great defensive way. Commodities is the best offensive way to play inflation. And now, unless we're thinking that we're going to go back to a very low inflation regime, which I think most people will agree we're not going to, if there's inflation volatility, this is still the best you know name in the game. Um, and then in terms of positioning, this is what I like to offer up, right? If we look at the last, I don't know, you can say 20 years, 30 years, 40 years, whatever the, the, the time period may be, inflation, uh, the commodity cycles all last about 8 to 10 years, right? Original China super cycle took about 8 to 10 years for a, a supply glut to come in to, to balance the market. The, the down market, the lost decade, you know, when, when Feng stocks did absolutely great, but uh, commodities lagged. It took about 10 years for, for the, uh, the supply and demand to balance, right? We are effectively in year, you know, finish year two of this commodity cycle. But this commodity cycle, because of certain trends like deglobalization, decarbonization, I think the magnitude and duration is going to surprise uh, everybody because there's just not enough supply coming in. The, the, the supply response is not being allowed to come back in, whether it's um, – you know, you know, the, the fear of, well, in 20 years, we won't need cars or we won't need combustion engines. Why would I go out there and, 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 and drill an oil well or build a pipeline? And it's that fear that keeps the supply at bay. And in the meantime, you know, demand's not really not, not disappearing at any, any noticeable rate. So it's one of those things that causes a huge supply and demand gap. So there will be volatility in the near term, but volatility for an active manager should always be viewed as an entry opportunity or a po- opportunity to generate alpha. Well, I just want to pick up on a, a point you made about the you know the correlation, I guess, what's uh, you know, between commodities and equities. You mentioned you know, it's, you know very low, it's close to zero. I know specifically for gold, we can go back a hundred plus years of data, and you'd see effectively a close to zero correlation between gold and uh, and equities. And in partly because you know gold has it's called idiosyncratic factors that can kind of drive it. It can be a safe haven as a flight to safety. It can be perceived as an inflation hedge. It can move depending on the interest rates. Uh, so it has its own sort of set of drivers, which from just a portfolio diversification perspective, that's, that's reasonably attractive. Even if over time gold sort of expected returns, you know, aren't, you know, that component, it's more the diversification. When we broaden that out to commodities, you know, when we've done some work, what we'll see is and this kind of ties into your point. You see these sort of secular bull markets that, you know, for periods of time, commodities can be fantastic. There's also periods of time where they, they can underperform, right? We, we know that post-financial crisis, uh, you know, there's a period of time where, where commodity prices, after a lot of investment, underperformed. So if you take a long period of data, like, like say, 50 years of commodity prices, you can have low correlation, but it also has periods of time where it's almost like a tactical trade, except the tactical trade is like a multi-year perspective. Uh, and, and when you look at strategic asset allocations, over that full 50 years, there's periods of time where it does really well, periods of time where it doesn't necessarily do well. Um, so as a result, though, the average return, you know, it's, it's fine, but not great, but it does have these things as volatility. So from a strategic perspective, it can kind of have a bit of a challenge of like, a long term, you look at it and go, well, this is giving me some volatility, but the returns aren't great. But I also, I kind of think of it as something where it's, it's a little bit of, you know, you want to own at the right times, and the right times can be a multi-year period. We go to the fundamentals you, you, you kind of discussed in, you know, a minute ago. When you think of different asset classes, like energy is an obvious one where there's been sort of maybe a lack of investment because everyone thought, well, I'll be driving like you know, e, e cars, electric cars, you know, by 2030, probably optimistic, you know, and so there's a rationale of why you can see, you know, maybe there's been a lack of investment in the energy space. And that's going to kind of 
you know, as a result, that's going to bias you know, oil prices to probably go higher on a multi-year perspective, or at least you know, stay elevated. But what about other commodity kind of asset classes, like whether it's uh, especially in the industrial metals, given the transition to kind of clean energy, sustainable energy, in some way you got to go brown before you go green. So where do you see across maybe the whole commodity complex some of these multi-year dynamics being more impactful uh, in some commodities, in some specific aspects versus others? You, Jason, you, you nailed it right on the head. I mean, when when I look at metals and materials, um, the concept really is all we're doing with decarbonization is we're, we're trading one set of addictions for another set of addiction. Um, you know, some of the fun facts that I like to you know, you know highlight is a typical windmill um, takes four to five tons of copper. Uh, an average EV versus the average uh, combustion engine is three to four times the, the copper wiring. If we want to have a renewable-generated uh, uh, system, the grid needs to be just completely redone, grid 2.0. All of that takes aluminum, copper, lithium, nickel, cobalt. The amount of sheer amount of metals, um, you know, decimated that, you know, over the next 20 to 30 years, the amount of metals that we will need to dig up and produce and consume just for general economic purposes and for decarbonization will be larger than in all the metals we've actually produced in the history of mankind. I mean, the numbers are staggering, right? What, what people fail to realize is that decarbonization or energy transition is not a, a pure digital revolution, right? It's a, it's a physical transformation. Um, rather than burning fossil fuel, we're, we're capturing it in either wind or sun or, or with hydrogen. These are physically very, very intensive. Now, here's the thing. How long does it take to, to build a copper mine? You know, decade plus. Uh, where are we finding these copper mines? Well, you know, inner Mongolia, in the middle of the Congo, these are not cheap to make, right? And there, there's actually no alternative, right? You, you can't electrify without having either copper or aluminum. It's just physically, it's impossible. So, so the, the amount of, when, when we look at kind of when the cyclical and the secular lines up, that's just, you know, the best situ- the investment environment you can think of. Cyclical is in, well, we, we came out of a, a pretty long bear market. Um, we don't have a lot of supply. We don't have a lot of inventory. Um, China coming out of a two, three-year lockdown, they're going to consume a lot just for their economy reopening. And that's a cyclical um, outlook, right? On the secular outlook is, oh, boy, we have, I mean, decarbonization. That is a massive wave of just multi-decade, multi-generational demand coming in. And and, and that's going to be really attractive. There's going to be opportunities across Supply chains and value chains you know, that I think an active manager will will, will, will pick out. Um, and to your earlier point about energy and oil, right, is that, you know, the funny thing is that the last barrel of oil ever consumed will be the most expensive barrel. Um, and then the common joke is that it will take the second to last barrel to produce it. So contrary to popular belief is that the more you displace oil um, from the energy mix, prices don't go down. Prices actually go up higher and higher. Case in point, we can look at coal. Right. As the U.S. uses less coal, coal prices haven't dropped. You know, it's, it's one of those concepts that supply, uh, lower supply will offset uh, lower demand. You know, you mentioned we would substitute one addiction for another. And another thought, completely separate from this conversation, I want to throw in mind, is like, all right, we substitute TikTok, then I guess for Instagram. It's not a separate matter. But um, uh, just kind of keep in, like, what is kind of this multi-year view then, you know, and I'm going to try maybe try and pin you down a little bit. Like, given you need to invest in these metals to actually then get, you know, green energy, uh, but there's also like you know the, the price of that last barrel of oil is actually going to be expensive. Like, say five years from now, is there a particular commodity where you'd say, 
like the bias in terms of current pricing and the supply demand dynamics suggest that prices are going to go up more than that. So you have higher conviction that the direction of travel, say for copper, is that price is, you know, I'm more confident that price is going to go up X percent versus the price of oil is going to go up or natural gas. I mean, there's a, you know, in the commodity complexes or, you know, one or two that you say, like, I have higher conviction here versus there. Oh, absolutely. I, I think if we're looking at, you know, kind of a mid to longer term outlook, you know, aside from just near term volatility, it's absolutely copper. Um, you know, you have China reopening and you have, you know, every indicator pointing to, you know, the green revolution picking up more steam, not less, with RIA in, in U.S., Europe, um, and, and copper is still basically, you know, the price is really heavy. They've done a, done a little bit of a rally, but not, not too much. Um, absolutely, it's copper. If you, if you have to look at one commodity, it's going to be copper. The, the cyclical and, and structural is just completely lined up for it. Um, and, and it's one of those things where it's really hard to find uh, alternatives, right? You, you know, if you want to electrify, you want to decarbon, decarbonize, you will need copper. Um, and today's price reflects almost nothing, almost reflects none of that. So copper will be my, my, main, my main bet on, on kind of a longer-term basis. All right, I'll hold you that. Hold you to that in five years from now when we convene. <laughs> I will. Uh, happy to. <laughs> okay. Just to follow up in terms of positioning as well as risks, maybe for investors who might be new to this asset class, any guidance in terms of how to best navigate, as well as the best way to access the asset class, as well in terms of the pros or cons of buying commodity-linked equities versus outright commodities. Yeah, no, that that's a great question, and, and obviously I'm biased. And my my background, I actually have equity and, and futures experience. Um, but one one of the interesting thing about commodities and commodities related equities is the dispersion. I mean, if you just take the S and P Global Natural Resources Index and, and you separate out the first 50th percentile versus bottom 50th percentile, and you can take any year you want, you know, one year, three year, any historical year. The dispersion, the difference in return on average between top and bottom 50 percentile is on average 50 plus percent. You know, that they're saying that there's always a bull and bear market going on somewhere is never more true than in commodities. And that's why commodities and natural resources equities is probably one of the areas where active management is a must, right? Because, you know, there was a point made earlier that, oh, if you hold commodities through time, you know, there's returns, but it's not fantastic, right? Because that's passive. But if you look at the active, what the outperformers and underperformers, it doesn't it doesn't really hover around any averages. There's massive outperformers, massive underperformers, and active manager theoretically that's focused on alpha and has a, a genuine research and investment process should be able to tease that out. So one, the first advice I would give investors is definitely absolutely, especially in this investment kind of you know paradigm, you have natural resources, right? Have real assets that can protect, that can give you some yield, that can give you that zero correlating, and that's leverage to the cyclical and structural factors, right? But two is that, you know, go beyond that. Find active, right? Active really matters here. This is not one of those things, oh, I'll, I'll buy ETF and buy it, forget it. Um, commodities move in cycle. So you don't, you don't want to just overstay your welcome. You don't want to be too early. But an active manager should be able to navigate through, through volatility, and then through the cycles. That's great guidance, Alan. Important considerations there to keep in mind for investors. We have just a few moments remaining, so maybe we can hear some final thoughts, takeaways from our commodities investing conversation today. Jason, what we'll do, we'll provide our guest, Al, with the final word. So I'll go to you first, Jason, with any final thoughts or takeaways you would like to leave us with. From a cyclical and secular perspective, 
you know, the points that Alice made in terms of the, uh, you know, the direction of travel should be higher for commodity prices. Anything in the very near term, just given the macro uncertainty that we're dealing with in terms of central bank policy, most immediately in the U.S. in terms of banking stress issues, there's just a lot of ambiguity. So I think for the markets in general, this applies to fixed income, to bonds, to equities, more volatility. I think you know commodities are not going to be immune to that. So while the the fundamentals are suggest you know, you know prices should go higher, I think we have to be kind of cognizant at least in the very near term that meaning like the next few weeks, next couple of months, you know those factors might not become apparent. Whereas as the year goes on, especially as the China story kind of really reopens uh, and kind of the acceleration picks up as the year goes on, I think that should provide a bit of a tailwind. In looking at the big picture, you know, short-term risk sentiment and positioning tends to not matter. It really comes down to basic sort of supply and demand and where the direction of travel is. I think from that perspective, you know, all the key indicators that suggest, you know, investment or need for more commodities is, is going to you know, pick up. Uh, the supply or investment in supply the past five to eight years hasn't been there, and that's going to kind of you know, squeeze, you know, prices higher, all else equal. But also means there's going to be investment that's needed to generate new supply. So part of, you know, when we think of a multi-year perspective, these are kind of part of themes of, you know, building sort of resiliency in, in sort of supply chains, uh, you know, thinking about kind of the broader green tech evolution, which doesn't mean just, you know, green energy, but it means the whole scope of, of kind of investing in that direction. So I think that that's how I would think about it near term, you know, some volatility, you know, should sort of have you know, provide a tailwind to these commodity prices as the year goes on, and then on a multi-year perspective, there's definitely areas of of opportunities that um, you know that investors can think about. How do you position for these bigger secular trends and transitions? Yeah, no, I, I would definitely echo uh, Jason's uh, perspective here. I mean, there's going to be a lot of volatility. Um, what I would remind the listeners is that at the end of the day, the fundamentals do trump all. Um, volatility. Should, should be, I don't want to say embrace it, but look for volatility opportunities, right? Um, that that's actually where that the real uh, excess returns and, and alpha is generated. So look look for weakness to, as entry opportunities because as Jason and, and I really believe, I, I think this is a, a multi-multi-year thematic that will continue to work. Thank you both again for your time. Very productive educational conversation. A lot of considerations you've left our listeners with with respect to commodities investing. So thank you both again for the time and for sharing your insights with our listeners. Yeah, thanks for joining us all today. Interesting conversation. UBS Chief Investment Office's investment views are prepared and published by the Global Wealth Management Business of UBS AG or its affiliates. The views and opinions expressed in this material by external guest speakers are those of the author, speaker, and are not those of UBS, its subsidiaries, or affiliates. Accordingly, UBS does not accept any liability over the content of this material or any claims, losses, or damages arising from the use or reliance of all or any part thereof. This material has no regard to the specific investment objectives, financial situation, or particular needs of any specific recipient, and is published for informational purposes only. For a full legal disclaimer applicable to the independent investment views produced by UBS, please visit our website at ubs.com forward slash CIO disclaimer.